0: Hello, I'm Alex Harkin, I'm a barrister at the Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined uh, in the shed virtually by Dr Tanya Gergel. And as people know by now, I hope, I always really want the person who I'm talking to to introduce themselves rather than me try to project onto them what it is that I think that they do. So Tanya, over to you. Can you give us a little pen picture of, of, of your background and your position and what your interests are?
1: Um, Well, I suppose essentially I'm a philosopher, so I kind of get confused about what it is that I do as well. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm currently I'm I am I'm a philosopher in residence at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College. I'm in the Department of Psychological Medicine and um, my at the moment I specialize in Sort of philosophy of medicine philosophy of psychiatry and specifically uh, mental health ethics and law and i'm part of a large project mental health and justice and one of my uh, particular areas of interest is um, advanced decision making um, in in mental health
0: and one of the areas i mean in particular in, recent, in relation to kind of advanced decision making i think one of the areas which comes up is in relation to capacity so people's yes. decision making capacity <laughs> and i just Kind of, I want to talk more about advanced decision making in, in a minute, but just thinking about capacity, decision making capacity for a second. And being really, as it were, blunt, you're a philosopher. H- how can you help somebody who is thinking about somebody's decision making capacity?
1: So, um, I mean, I think there's a kind of... The, it's. That's a variation of a question that often comes to me, especially, as I say, being the philosopher in residence at the IOP. Um, But the sort of what's philosophy got to do with this? Because I think when people think about philosophy, you know, they think about people sitting in rooms contemplating the meaning of life and some, you know, abstruse kind of thought experiments. Um, But actually... You know, as I say to people, what philosophy is really about is sort of, I mean, it can boil down to sort of four central questions. Um, and, and that's, you know, the question of, of how should we act? And so that's ethics. And people don't seem to have so much of a problem of understanding how that relates to, to issues like capacity. But then there's things like, you know, what's, what is something? What's the nature of something? So the sort of metaphysics question. Um, then there's how do we know things, how is it that we come to reach knowledge and understanding, what is knowledge, um, so epistemology, and, and then of course there's logic and whether, you know, whether a concept actually works, whether the reasoning process within it is flawed or, or whether it works, and so hopefully, you know, just by kind of, just by mentioning those sort of central questions, we can begin to see that there will be, you know, there's going to be a relation to something like decision-making capacity to a concept like that
0: um, and, you know, for it, to its sort of broader ramifications. Just dwelling on the kind of the ethics bit for a second, because I mean, I, my, I mean, I, one of the things I always say when I'm training people or teaching people is that, you know, the Mental Capacity Act is kind of 1% law and 99% ethics. Yeah, so I kind of, as a, I don't require any persuasion um, <laughs> that the ethical side is of importance, but I wonder if, the, if you've got any kind of, in terms of, because you're, you're as it were, tr- you have the, the, the academic and the tools, the, the linguistic tools to be talking about ethics. I've got a rather kind of hazy conception. I wonder if you just want to give us any thoughts on kind of thinking about capacity from an ethical perspective.
1: Um, so I suppose, I mean, I think that, Generally, I mean, as you say, you know, I think it was 95%, 99% ethics, maybe. And that's probably quite an accurate reflection. And I think, you know, people are, even if unwittingly, people are thinking about ethics when they're thinking about the central question of um, surrounding decision-making capacity. And I mean, so sort of key areas. I mean, if we start at the very beginning, we start with this idea about uh, presumption of capacity So we need to assume that the person that we're talking to has the ability to make the relevant decision, unless we've got really good reason to suppose otherwise. And that might sound quite straightforward at first, but I suppose in very general terms, decisions often involve values. They involve the values of the person who's making the decision, they involve the values of the person who is assessing the decision, and they involve the sort of broader societal values surrounding, you know, surrounding the general context in which those decisions are being made, as well as the values of the medical profession, the values of the legal profession. So lots and lots of different evaluative dimensions coming into this. And yet, the decision as to whether someone has capacity is supposedly purportedly an objective decision and an objective assessment and but even this very very starting principle this foundational principle of the assumption that someone has capacity you can already see how difficult this could be when you start to put it into the context of the network of all those different
0: values. Yeah. Can we just dwell on presumptions for a second? Because I know Mm -hmm. it's something which really, it really bothers people. And it really bothers people in different ways. And I mean, just to to conceptualize for a second or concretize for a second, for instance, in a kind of mental health context, if you put more weight on presumptions and you want to have a mental health law, which is more capacity based, then one of the fears which is expressed is, for instance, well, what happens if people misuse a presumption of capacity? you know, the presumption of capacity is used against someone. So someone's saying, I want help. Yes. And then the professional involved says, well, there's a presumption of capacity. I'm going to presume you've got capacity to decide, for instance, to self-harm. Who am I to intervene? As it were, I'm validated in not intervening. Yes, yes, yes. And so I'm just sort of and the contrary position, of course, being, well, one of the reasons of presumption there might be that to try and stop that immediate shift, which has been seen in situations from you're not making the decision I like i'm the professional, therefore you don't have capacity Yes, yes, and I sort of I think,
1: yeah, I do think that in the mental health context, which is it's such an important thing to be thinking about because the you know, the integration of capacity into mental health law is happening more and more and uh, with you know, fusion being considered or or just in in the context of uh, uh, individual elements of the law, capacities coming into play. Um, And I think there's, yeah, there is, there's a bit of a catch 22 situation in certain areas, certain elements of psychiatry, not just surrounding capacity, but surrounding concepts like insight, surrounding things like self-harm, like sort of suicidality. Um, And there's sort of this catch 22, that the sort of thing that you're describing is that, you know, if someone says that they're unwell, and they need help, um, then often it can be assumed by a professional that they're not actually that seriously unwell and that maybe they don't need that sort of extreme level of help. And um, this can certainly happen you know, in cases of self-harm um, if the person comes and they say that, you know, they, they, that the, the instinct is uncontrollable um, that they feel that they're lacking in capacity um, to to properly make a decision about whether they need to be you know stopped or uh, treated, um, then there's a sort of idea that well if they understand that much they can't possibly be lacking in capacity, um, then yeah and I think I think that's one that happens a lot. That's that's one from sort of the the. Talking to people and talking to service users with a history of self harm, that sort of idea that actually, not so much the question of someone saying that they want to continue and so they don't need treatment, but more the question of someone saying that they want to, they, they want to be prevented. Yeah. Um, but the, there's a sort of, <laughs> and the assumption of capacity perhaps works against them in that context. Um, but I suppose the other, so the other one. I mean, the one that concerns me quite a lot, and which is sort of more the opposite way, is that is not so much that people might assume capacity when capacity isn't there, but that people may automatically assume a lack of capacity on the basis of somebody's diagnosis. Um, yeah. And you know, this this um, this sort of ties very much into a philosophical idea called epistemic injustice, and this is the idea that the capacity of someone as a knower, their testimony, for example, is doubted on the basis of their status or their diagn- you know, status in terms of uh, their beliefs, their particular, you know, their, their beliefs, their sexuality, their political beliefs, or a particular disability. And I think in mental health in particular, this is, you know, this this is very this is something which people with a history of mental illness often encounter in, especially in a medical context. And if capacity becomes a more central element of mental health law, there's a real danger of this being, you know, this being part of the clinical decision-making process about whether someone has the capacity to make a decision or not.
0: Yeah. I think there's something very powerful that the idea of epistemic knowledge or epistemic injustice. I'm I'm just not going to take you at face value. You know, I'm yeah. not actually your uh, the you could it's almost like if your words were voiced by an actor, I would assign them a certain weight. Because they're being voiced by you and I've got a certain degree of knowledge about you, I'm going to assign them a completely different way, even though you are saying exactly the same thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think people encounter it, you know, people with a history of mental illness encounter this on an everyday basis in a medical context. You hear time and time again someone says they went to their GP because of a particular, I don't know, a virus or a particular pain or an illness. And they sort of walk in to a GP they don't know well, they start talking about a particular thing, the GP calls the records up on the screen, they see them flicking through the records, they know straight away that they're going to see a history of, I don't know, bipolar, schizophrenia. The second that they see that, automatically the, I'm, I'm sorry, This is I'm not meaning to cast aspersions on GPs as, uh, this is, I'm not saying that this is of every GP, this is just a hypothetical example or an example that's encountered by some people. Yeah. Yeah. But the second that this diagnosis is seen, then the account that the person is giving of the experiences that they have and the effect that those experiences are having on them is somehow doubted. In a way which it wouldn't be had they not seen that diagnostic um, yeah that that diagnostic
0: analysis on the records, I want to sort of change gears mentally and think about advanced decision making in in a second, but before leaving that, what do you think could be done to help counteract what you've just described? So you've described the idea of you know yes. Yeah. when when the person's seen in their context a different value a lesser value perhaps is of lesser value is attached to what they're saying
1: um i think in the context of mental illness um i mean i i sort of part of the problem whether it's for primary care or secondary care part of the problem is that uh medical professionals tend to see people with mental illness when they're unwell and obviously those in a hospital context when they're very unwell and you know it may at those times they may be strongly justified in thinking that that person lacks capacity for example to make a decision about treatment and they don't necessarily especially with the sort of pressures on services at the moment they don't necessarily spend much time with the individual when they are comparatively well when they're living their life relatively normally whether you want to describe it as in remission or recovered or or just stable and so what they don't see is evidence that actually those people you know, are functioning very well and do have capacity to make decisions about many things and, and about treatment. Um, and so I think, and this isn't just about medical professionals, this is about society in general and the sort of pictures that people have of an individual with mental illness. There's a kind of global assumption that this person, this person's capacity is somehow impaired because they experience at points, they experience severe episodes of mental illness. So I think that, you know, for a start, if we have less stigma surrounding mental illness and people who, uh, people with mental illness are able to talk out when they're well about their experiences and how they view those experiences and to sort of show a different side to themselves, Or at the same time as being open about the fact that they encounter, that they experience mental illness, then I think people will start to have a different view and may start to think actually, you know, that this, this almost presumption of incapacity might not be correct. And especially for medical professionals, I think it's important that they work with service users who are well or who are, you know, who are in remission, who are stable, and they talk to those service users to get a sense of you know, a fuller picture of, of the person and a fuller picture of why, it's, you know, why they should be assuming that the person has capacity most of the time.
0: Brilliant. I, I really want to ask you whether as a philosopher you think the concept of mental capacity stacks up logically but I'm not going to um, simply because it's such a big issue. So, and I do want to make sure that in our remaining time we've had, uh, I, I, I want to get your insights for people on, on advanced decision-making and the, in particular, the bit that I'd really like your, your input in, your, your help with is, is so much of advanced decision-making it is bound up in this idea that are you the same person across time? Mm. And that's that stuff that philosophers are, are really well equipped to, to help with mere lawyers like us. Not so good. So over to you, because I really like your thoughts on on this, this, this issue.
1: Um, well, you know, firstly, I'm disappointed that I don't get to do a logical breakdown of mental capacity because I was looking forward to talking about things like reductio ad absurdum and the concept of decision specificity. But I'll save that for another time. <laughs> so
0: well, we, we may have to do Part two, but yes. Yeah.
1: I bet everyone can't wait. (laughs) So, no, no, returning to the question that you asked me, this question of the continuity of the self over time, which, as you say, is so much bound up in the notion of advanced decision-making. So, you know, to to put this, first of all, to sort of give this an example so that it makes sense to people, the kind of thing that we're talking about. I mean, one of the big debates surrounds, for example, um, advanced decision-making and dementia um, and the concept, the, the concept of someone's values, especially in relation to things like quality of life. So, the, if you take, a, take the example of someone who, you know, that they're in the very early stages, they've just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or they are becoming older and they're thinking that this is a possibility that, you know, that may happen to them at some point, And they've witnessed people going through this and they in their current state in their well state or in their state in the very early stages before things have really started to impact on them they think of this as something that would be you know that, that they feel would be intolerable they feel would have such a detrimental effect on their quality of life that it would you know effectively for them now make life something which isn't you know not worth living they the loss of their cognitive abilities um and elements of their personality and character, those type of effects, so that's that's how they feel. They then, working on these values and ideas and beliefs, they draw up uh, for example, an advanced decision to refuse treatment if they become seriously unwell and have dementia, things like that. But then, as the condition worsens or as they you know if they do develop the condition. Often people can change dramatically and not just change in terms of the sort of the negative, you know, the sort of impairments of memory, that type of thing. But entire sort of personality shifts. And, you know, you can often I know I remember from I remember actually seeing both my grandmothers go through um, Alzheimer's. And, you know, I remember that actually they were both, especially in the earlier sort of stages when they were quite severely affected on the cognitive level and probably would be considered to be lacking in capacity to make. Many decisions. At the same time, they were, you know, you could see that they were having a quality of life that they had a very distinct personality that they were enjoying the experiences that they had, and that may very well have differed from how they would have seen things when they were well um, prior to this. And so, in philosophy, one of the central ideas about the what you know what makes us the same person. So in in law, if if your advanced directive, if your advanced decision, sorry, is going to apply at a future time when you lack capacity, it's important that you're the same person. I mean, if you're not the same person from a legal basis, from an ethical basis, why should we think that your prior decision has any more relevance for your future self than than anybody else's or that a medical professional's? and, you know, one of the central ways um, in contemporary philosophy of thinking about what makes us the same person over time, uh, you know, what makes me now the same person as I am in, say, 10 years time is something is psychological continuity. So it's that there's significant continuity of elements of the self, things like values, beliefs, um. Memories, character, all of those things, and there's an idea that if those shift fundamentally, if those have changed fundamentally, effectively, you're really not the same person anymore. And that, once again, that might sound like quite an abstruse idea, but if you put it in the context of the dementia example, you can see that, in fact, it's it, it has real relevance here. Yeah, you know, it, it's not just a sort of it's not just some abstruse metaphysical question about you know is this person the same person now that they're unwell as they were before it's actually a question about you know have their values have their idea about quality of life their personality have those things shifted to so to such an extent that they really aren't the same person as they were when they wrote the document
0: yeah i mean it's a I mean, obviously, legally, you are, you don't, unless, I mean, the, the law doesn't identify that you become a different person, but you are completely right. There's a very different calculus involved if you actually think this advanced decision is really relating to someone we shouldn't identify as the same person. Yes. And it is. I mean, I would just, we are almost out of time, I'm afraid, but I think one, one important nuance, possibly just from the legal side, is that I think the drafters of the Mental Capacity Act at least sort of recognised and allowed for that. Because it does say an advanced decision is valid and applicable unless you've done something fundamentally inconsistent without remaining your fixed decision. And do doesn't necessarily mean at a point when you had capacity. So it might be that there's a kind of let out in the situation where it does feel like psychologically this is a different person or morally ethically this is a different person but
1: yes yes
0: it's otherwise it's a really it's a really complex area isn't it sort of ethics yeah,
1: and you know you can see how extreme this can be i think it's in the uh i think it's the netherlands you know where they, they actually have advanced euthanasia directives and there was this sort of horrific case where someone anticipating um, dementia, anticipating the decline, who you know who really had strong views about what their quality of life would be, or you know the lack of quality of life would be, had written one of these directives, and it was very, it was very evident actually that their views on that had changed, but because they were seen as lacking in capacity, the directive was actually acted upon. And um, and and they ended up, you know, they they ended up dying. Um, And and this particular case has been investigated and the the clinician at the centre of it was actually prosecuted for malpractice. But it's easy to see sort of it's easy to see how these things can, especially in, in that kind of context, what a sort of slippery slope it can be. And I think it's so much bound up. Um, I mean, you you know, you can talk about inconsistent things, but then you might say, well, the inconsistent thing is just evidence of the medical condition and that was anticipated by the person, you know, and it's also, I was talking about values before and societal values and, you know, society, we, as a society, we're now experiencing sort of having an aging population in a way that we just didn't. And we have views about, um, about the experience of ageing, the type of deterioration that might come with it and how that would impact on quality of life, both for ourselves and for others. And all of those things can start to influence.
0: Yeah. Well, I think almost with that question, we didn't ask or didn't allow, allow you to answer is, as a philosophy, do you think you've just managed to, you know, what do you think about decision-making capacity as an idea? I almost feel like as a philosopher, I need to be asking you, do you think advanced decisions should be allowed? But I'm not going to allow you to answer it now because we're out of time. But I, 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 well, first of all, I'm incredibly grateful to you for your time here. Um, and, and second, I very strongly suspect I may be hauling you back into the shed <laughs> to try and pick up on, on some of these issues, because you've just comprehensively shown us the extent to which, I mean, the MCA and, or, or issues relating to capacity really are very minimally legal and very maximally Ethical and philosophical, and hence why having the input of philosophy is so important to enable people to actually grapple with why are we doing this stuff? Not just are we doing it, but why we're doing it. So thank you so much, Tony. I really, really do appreciate it.
1: Oh, not at all. Thank you very much. Thanks.